You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We have been looking at the first few chapters of the book of Acts. And if you haven't been here since the beginning of the series, where have you been? Let me remind you of how Luke, the author of the book of Acts, opens. He tells the story, Jesus' mission to the disciples to be witnesses, his witnesses throughout the world. Well, Jesus then returns to heaven. He ascends bodily back into heaven, and the disciples actually stood and watched this. I can't imagine what that must have looked like, what that must have felt like. So as the disciples are watching in what had to be utter amazement, two angels appear to them and tell them to cut it out or something like that, that instead of just watching this spectacle happen, they said, you've got work to do. Jesus has given you an assignment to be his missionaries. And what Jesus had told them before beginning this assignment, though, is that they had to wait. Go back to Jerusalem and await the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come and indwell you and empower you to be God's missionaries. They waited. They gathered. They prayed. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. He came like the sound of a mighty wind in what looked like the tongues of fire that fell on each of the disciples. That's how chapter 2 opens. And what was the result? All these people from all these different nations and different languages heard for perhaps the very first time the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. And people from all around were drawn to see what was happening. And it's there that Peter stands up and delivers his first sermon. At the end of that sermon... Do you remember how many became believers that day? 3,000. Their number, that is the number of Jesus' followers, went from about 120 to 3,120 in one day. And chapter 2 ends by saying, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, it's not about the numbers. It's about the people. People matter to God. You matter to God. And he wants you to know that Jesus being your Lord and Savior matters. Your salvation matters. Your life matters. Do you know that he wants to be in a relationship with you? That he wants you to experience peace and life, abundant life, eternal life. And that only happens through Jesus. And you're going to hear more about that today. Well, shortly after that Pentecost Day sermon, Peter and John, two of the original 12 disciples, were going to the temple around 3 o'clock in the afternoon for prayer. And there on their way into the temple, they see a crippled, a crippled man, lame from birth, begging for money. His friends would bring him there day after day after day to set him up in a place where 
God's people, if they're being generous, will give to him so he can have a life. They look at this man and they say, look, we don't have any money for you. But what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And what happened? The man immediately was healed. Not only is this exciting for the man, for now he is able to walk and jump and dance for the first time ever doing that as he enters the temple to praise God. It's also exciting for those who saw him be able to do this for the first time. We're told that they were filled with wonder and amazement. You know what that is? That's the language of worship. But this whole encounter is also exciting for another reason. It's going to give an opportunity for Peter to preach again to the people. All of these new converts to Christianity, thousands coming to a relationship with Jesus, people were amazed at the power of God. Well, not everyone. Here's how chapter 4 opens. The priests and the captain of the and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Now, from where were Peter and John speaking to the people? We learned in chapter 3 they were at the temple. And this group was greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was the evening... They put them in jail until the next day. And with this comes the first occurrence of persecution in the book of Acts. It's the first of many. So the religious leaders at the temple had finally had enough. The religious group, we're told in verse 3, seized them. Another translation says they laid hands on them. Now, I guarantee you that was not in a spiritual blessing kind of way. Let me lay hands on you. No, it was more like, let me lay hands on you. (laughs) So why did these religious leaders forcibly arrest Peter and John and throw them in prison? Well, we were just told in verse 2, they were greatly disturbed that they were teaching the people. But it's not just that they were teaching the people, period. It's what they were teaching the people. They were claiming that in Jesus, there is the resurrection of the dead. Now, I want you to know, these religious leaders had two major problems with this teaching. Number one, in saying what they did, Peter and John were putting Jesus on par with, equal to God. If anyone could bring the dead to life, it's only God. Did Peter and John really know what they were saying? Absolutely. What gives them the right to make such a bold statement? (laughs) Well, Jesus did. Jesus said it himself. Jesus believed it himself. After all, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's why they murdered him in the first place. 
Jesus went around doing a lot of great things, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, exercising demons, demons out of people, loving and caring on people from all walks of life. For none of those things did they kill him. It's because he kept saying he was God. I and the Father are one, he said, recorded in John 10. One verse later, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And when they were asked, why are you stoning me? They replied, for blasphemy. A mere man claimed to be God. So the first problem these religious leaders had with Peter and John is that they are teaching the people that Jesus is the bringer of life, putting him on par with God. The second problem, at least according to the group known as the Sadducees, is that they were teaching that there is a resurrection from the dead, period, regardless of if it was through Jesus or someone else. You see, the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They would not have been looking forward to a Messiah to come. They were the most liberal of the groups. They were also anti-supernatural. And if that wasn't weird enough, this group was also the group from which the high priest would often come. So to appoint a high priest who wasn't really all that biblical is really strange. Back to our story from Acts. Keep in mind that we've been told that Peter and John got to the temple around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now here, we just read that it was evening. So how long have Peter and John been teaching and preaching the people? A couple hours at least, right? Remember that next time you think the Spirit should leave at 11. (laughs) Just saying. And then in verse 4, we're told this, that many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So thousands of people flocking to the apostles, hanging on every word for hours. And again, where were they doing all this teaching and preaching? At the temple. Now, to picture this scene correctly, we need to understand how threatening all this was for Peter and John. These officials were like the Supreme Court and Congress all rolled into one. They had religious authority, of course, but they also held a lot of civil authority and political authority. Here they were in Jerusalem the capital city. And if the high priest was the most powerful Jewish person in the city, the captain of the guard was not far behind him in a matter of authority. Furthermore, this group was the driving force behind the crucifixion of Jesus just weeks earlier. And if they didn't go as far as to crucify Peter and John, they could at least make their life miserable. This group represented powerful men. The fact that they arrested Peter and John could keep them overnight in jail, threatened with dire consequences if they continued preaching in Jesus' name, which we'll see in a few verses, shows that they 
would wield power, enough power to intimidate. Well, the story continues. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Meaning, by what power or what name did you heal this man, this man who was lame since his birth? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, let me pause there a second. Remember Peter, who just weeks before this, in order to avoid possible arrest himself, denied he even knew Jesus. Jesus had been arrested. Peter followed at a distance. Some people in the crowd, pretty sure they recognized Peter as one who had been with Jesus. Peter denied that accusation. He said, that's fake news. It happened again. He denied it again. It happened a third time. He vehemently denied it, even cursing. Jesus goes to the cross. Peter feels utter shame for his actions and his words. But after Jesus' resurrection, Peter is renewed in his faith. And he is restored through forgiveness by Jesus. So here he is, just a few weeks removed from that scene. And this once fairly cowardly Peter, is now standing in front of this powerful gathering, boldly about to remind them that they crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and he, that is Jesus, is the only way of salvation. If Peter had been fearful, he would have only have said enough to release him Instead, he boldly witnesses to these murderers of Jesus. Now, we look at that and we think, okay, here was Peter a few weeks earlier. Here he is now. How could this be? What is this transformation? How, how could this happen that he now is no longer a coward, speaks boldly in front of this very powerful group of men? We just read it. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Spirit empowered him to say. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and now Peter quotes from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And the next line is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
when they saw, next verse, <clears throat> when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So again, where was it that Peter and John had been teaching and preaching? It was at the temple. And who are they now trying to teach? <laughs> the temple leaders, the religious authorities, these men who had degrees in God. So just who do Peter and John think that they were? As far as the priests and Sadducees were concerned, the disciples were nothing but uneducated, ordinary men. The word ordinary in Greek is the word idiotai. It sounds kind of similar in English. It's idiot with an A-I added to the end of it. When you remember that Peter's occupation before meeting Jesus was that of a simple fisherman, that's what these religious professionals thought of him. Now, most of us don't know and perhaps will never know, and hopefully we will never know, persecution for the sake of Christ. The threat of someone rejecting us or thinking that we're weird is enough for us to sometimes just stop our witness. But there are two common misconceptions when it we've got to keep in mind when it comes to opposition for our faith. The first is this. If we're faithful to the Lord, he will protect us from all persecution. I've even heard people say, I don't understand what's happening. I was faithful and I'm being attacked by coworkers, family, friends. Why isn't the Lord protecting me? I don't know where that idea would come from because it clearly it's not the overriding theme of the Bible and not the overriding experience of just about every believer in the Bible. For instance, the Old Testament prophets were very bold and faithful witnesses, yet many of them were persecuted and are killed. And here's how Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the whole of Old Testament characters, not just the prophets, but the faithful leaders as well. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Oh, that's kind of gross. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Yet these were all commended for their faith. Add to that list John the Baptist, the original disciples, the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus himself. All very faithful witnesses who suffered much. We'll get to the second misconception about opposition to their faith after reading this next set of verses. Our story continues with the dilemma of these religious authorities. What are we going to do with Peter and John and the healing of this man who was lame from birth? <clears throat> but since they, could not, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, 
There was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. That's the council. In other words, they told Peter and John, hey, just leave us alone for a minute. Let's confer together. (laughs) What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Yeah, that'll do it. That's got to be the answer, right? And they called them in. They called Peter and John back in. Commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The second misconception is that persecution comes mainly from those outside the church. Now, to be sure, in our current cultural climate, there is a lot of opposition to what we as believers hold, to what, how we behave, how we want to try to live out our faith by those that are non-believers. You know, there's a certain level of expectation that non-believers will oppose the name of Jesus. But it always seems to be a surprise when it's fellow believers that attack us. For the most part, it was the religious establishment that opposed the prophets. It was the religious leaders who opposed and crucified our Lord. Here, the religious leaders lead the opposition against the disciples. But the encouragement is this, and be encouraged by this. If you, as an individual, is seeking to be faithful and you come under attack, know that you are doing something right. If we, as a church, are seeking to be faithful and we come under attack, know that we are doing something right. So the first reality in the life of the church is that there will be opposition. The second reality in the life of the church is what you do in the face of that opposition. What did Peter and John do? They kept proclaiming the name of Jesus. Now, they didn't do it in a way that was mean and hateful and judgmental. You're about to see that they stayed true to God and kept doing the right thing. It was their proclaiming of the name of Jesus that led to their persecution, which ultimately led to their arrest and imprisonment, which then led to dire threats and intimidation by the priests and the Sadducees. Here's our question. What are you and I tempted to do when faced with opposition for the gospel message? Too often we are tempted to stop proclaiming the gospel or at least seek to water it down. Sometimes we even change the message itself. That's what too many individuals and whole churches are doing today. In a vain attempt to make the message more appealing and therefore less offensive to the hearers, look, we are God's messengers, not God's editors. But what did Peter do? Did he back down? So the council, you know, gave their threats. 
Peter said, yes, sir, you're right. I should respect your experience of God and try not to impose the truth of the gospel and the promises of Scripture on the way you live your life. No, that's not what he did at all. Here's how the story keeps going. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard, what they know firsthand. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old, meaning he could answer on his own. He could corroborate the healing The third reality in the life of the church related to the name of Jesus is that salvation still occurs. Persecution for the sake of Jesus, thankfully, is not the only pattern that's repeated over and over in the book of Acts. Yes, the proclamation of the name of Jesus led to persecution, but it also leads many to salvation. Because God is bigger and more powerful than any opposition. And the power and presence of the Holy Spirit continues to show up again and again. In Acts 2.41, on the day of Pentecost, we're told that those who received Peter's message proclaimed about Jesus and believed in Jesus and were baptized. Again, that number was 3,000. Six verses later, we're told that the Lord added daily to the numbers of those who were being saved. And here in Acts 4.4, we're told that the number of believers now totaled more than 5,000. You see, Peter and John knew that Jesus had changed their lives. This formerly crippled man knew that the name of Jesus had changed his life. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to save them from their sins knows that he is mighty to save. <clears throat> Jesus even saved the chief of sinners, as the Apostle Paul would refer to himself. Look, if the man who spent his whole beginning of his life destroying Christians could be changed by Jesus, then we can confidently offer the good news of God's salvation to any and every person knowing what Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Often the most powerful witness is someone like this formerly lame man whose life was dramatically changed by the power of Jesus Christ. We offered this last week. I'm going to do it again in just a moment. There are some of you who either want to be changed by Jesus or who have been changed by Jesus, and you want to publicly acknowledge that. Look, the religious leaders had asked Peter and John about the healing of this crippled man. By what power or by what name did you do this? Peter told them. 
by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And that all culminated with this most powerful verse, to hear it again. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus is the only way. The big idea here is that all Peter and John were doing were echoing the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, isn't that a bit intolerant and exclusive? You mean to tell me there's only one way to God? This so cuts across the grain of our culture. We live in an age where tolerance seems to be the primary virtue. I've even had a friend, a pastor friend of mine, once tell me, I can believe Jesus is the only way for me, but I can't say he's the only way for someone else. And I'm like, do you read the Bible? What book do you use? You see, people don't object. If you say, I found Jesus as my personal Savior, they say, well, that's nice for you. I'm into something else. Or they'll say, all you got to do is just be a good person. Just believe in something. All roads lead to God. Wrong answer. Jesus Christ himself cuts against the great tolerance of our culture and intolerantly proclaims, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's the good news. While there is salvation in no one else, there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ for all who trust in him alone. To trust in Jesus Christ means you abandon trusting in your own good works. To trust in Jesus Christ means you let go of your pride and you acknowledge your need for someone greater than all of us to be the leader of your life. Like this lame man, there is no hope for you to heal yourself. Only Jesus Christ can heal you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ can free you. Only Jesus Christ can forgive you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.